thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. One of the things we at the Wolf Institute have in common with our friends at the Naked Scientists, actually we have a lot in common, is that we're both struggling with the way the idea of authority is losing its grip. Scientists, as well as faith and community leaders, seem to be shedding public trust. Is this a perfect storm of an internet fueled delusion that we know it all ourselves, exacerbated by a truculent tabloid press? Or a genuine shift of power away from what elites tell us to believe towards a more sceptical and personal morality? Have institutions brought this reaction on themselves by their distant and sometimes reprehensible behaviour? Nowhere is the problem more serious than in politics, where we've been moving from a relatively quiet authority to raucous authoritarianism. With me to discuss these matters are Patrick Nash and Elisa Simon from the Wolf Institute and Reverend Neil Thorogood, Principal of Westminster College. Neil, let's start at the beginning. Why do humans need authority? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I guess there would be a whole variety of reasons why we need authority, why we feel a need for authority. I think one of them would be that we, life is complicated. We live in a complicated world. Uh, we live uh, fragile, complex lives. We interact in all sorts of ways with both the natural world and with one another. Uh, and so to have guidance, to have people and institutions and ways of doing all of that, I think is something quite innate to us. But we're run- running away from it, aren't we? I think all sorts of things, well, in parts of the world we are, not, not everywhere. We're doing different things at different speeds. Certainly in our part of the world, yeah, I think we are. Although I think actually what we're doing is I suspect we are, to some extent, we're simply finding other ways of finding authority and placing authority. And, and one of those is within the self. I, I suspect we are um, in all sorts of ways living in an era where we become, we're kind of built in skeptics about everything outside of ourselves. So we're becoming more individualistic. I think there's an element of that going on. But doesn't, doesn't that make us harder to govern? <laughs> well, uh, we're about to watch that, I think. I think it does. I, I think and I, th- and I guess one of the things that I'm struck by is that some of the assumptions, I mean, I was listening just to the radio this morning, some of the sort of assumptions of how our political landscape works just don't hold true anymore. And I think we see politicians, we see leaders, we see local community groups all grappling with, with what is a, um, a, a shifting of all sorts of, of, of senses of self and of community. Elisa, is that something you can relate to? Yes, I can. I think 
it's also important to kind of distinguish what are the two kinds or types of authority. So I think in one approach, we can maybe think more about Hobbes and about how authority stems from the monarch, who essentially, you know, he's the one who, who shapes human contact. And then there is the, the more the approach that belongs to Locke, in which we have like a social conduct and, and an agreement. And I think in this sense, today, we are seeing kind of a turn away from the fact that we do have a social agreement, that we all agree on something, and we want to derive our authority from each other, and a sense that, that we're in chaos. And this chaos can be caused from too much information, it can be caused from a sense that we don't agree on what the social order is anymore. And so we have this turn towards authoritarian figures that maybe remind us more of the Hobbesian approach, which just tell us what to do so that I can be safe. And so I very much relate to what um, Neil said. Do we have a problem with the social contract then? I think so. I think there's a big question of legitimacy over authority in all sorts of ways now, religious authority political authority, but also, I think, academic and scholarly authority. Uh, and one one of the points of being an academic is to become an, if not the, authority in your field or fields. Uh, but I think it's becoming harder to cut through outside of the academy for all sorts of people now. The, the issue is that there is a problem with groupthink, and it's not just academic. If you're in a wonderful place like Oxford or Cambridge or wherever else in the country and you spend all of your time with brilliant, marvellous people, you've got a comfortable living, uh, you fly around the world and meet other wonderful people, uh, you, you live in a very civil atmosphere, you don't have too many problems relative to other people in society. If you don't step outside of that and spend time with people who just don't exist in that space, that that sort of milieu of society, you're going to become very detached from them. Uh, I mean, maybe we're seeing that in religion. I don't, I don't know how much we could read in that from what else has been said here today. Politics, we're certainly seeing that, uh, that we, we, do, we don't... Politicians are seen as distant and not relevant to people's lives. They're very distrusted generally across the board. And is that the same in the the religious world where, where you sit as a religious leader? Yes, I think there may be an element of that. I think I think certainly in my my bit of the religious world in in the Reformed Christian bit of it, part, a lot of the traditions that we come out of are traditions that really highlight um authority residing in small groups of people. So the local congregation having authority over its life and indeed the individual, you know, a one-to-one relationship with God. And there is certainly, I think, for amongst us, a tendency to say, actually, if I know where you stand on one particular issue, theologically um, uh, or in terms of society and community, I can then package a whole raft of assumptions that you will also feel X, Y, and Z about A, B, and C. And I think one of the things that, that... we need to get better at doing is being willing to say, actually, if that is almost happening as a default thing, let's notice that and deliberately break out of that and say, but actually, it is possible for us to be people who have a whole variety of opinions about a whole variety of things. So what does it mean to really then find places of encounter and conversation? Well, I was going to ask you, how do you break out of that? Well, that's, yes. <laughs> I guess that's a million-dollar question. It is a million-dollar question. I mean, I'm on Twitter, and I'm very conscious of um, throwing 
you know, random thoughts out into the Twitter sphere. Actually, at its best, I think what happens is a whole bunch of people start to connect into a conversation. And that leads to all sorts of things that you didn't expect. At its worst, and it often is at its worst, you just get, you know, you realize that I'm in the bubble and I'm just simply interacting in the bubble. So I suppose what I'm interested in is how do we find space in in our lives and in our organizations, in our structures, in universities, in in churches, in, in, in synagogues? How do we find space where we can actually engage with difference and and celebrate it as diversity? What you're a little bit what I'm hearing from what you're saying is um, you're talking as if there's a loss of of critical thinking that we've flattened the conversations in our bubbles that there is a set of ideals that we all ad- adhere to and and that's it is that a little bit of what you're getting at I I, I mean I suppose I've got to be careful because the danger is I'm <laughs> I'm doing exactly the thing that I'm worried about so caricaturing I, I wonder how willing we are a to allow for there to be things that we don't know answers to. How willing we are to say, well, this is what I think, but actually I might be wrong. Actually, I might think better if if I was in conversation with other people. And and it just feels to me, and, and I do think this is part of what we're watching happening politically around the world, is that actually there is a flattening going on. The idea that we have nuanced political debate seems to be something that's almost mythological now. In the field of law, you're not going to have a judge say, you know what, I don't know. No, so you need an answer in law. It's some, I mean, fundamentally, it's there to resolve conflicts. And that, that's, in, in the common law at least, it grew up uh, as an organic, invisible hand to deal with the kind of everyday or more serious conflicts that people have in society. So you can't duck it in law. So there's a tendency, I think that's reflected in in the style that lawyers use to talk to each other and debate. It's a lot more, it's assertive, but it's also, there, there's, because you're often, if, if you're in front of a judge, you have an umpire of some sort to direct that conversation. And if you do anything out of line or, or, or rude in some way, you'll you'll come down. And that, that eventually sort of ingrains itself in you as a person. It would be difficult to translate that outside of law, but that, that's one of the nicer cultural dimensions to it. Um, the, the other side is you can't get away from answering difficult questions. So I think one of the other problems in politics, at least, uh, across probably the last 20 years, is this tendency to be squeamish about hard questions like immigration, Israel, Palestine, whatever it is. And people just don't want to go there. I mean, that, that's part of what this institute's about, is to have those conversations. But when it comes to law, you actually need, you're going to have to take a, an answer. You want the best possible answer, which is not going to please everyone, but you need an answer of some sort. So are you suggesting, Patrick, that there hasn't been a loss of authority in the law? The law is as authoritative as it ever was, but the faith leaders and the political leaders and the academics have lost authority, but not in the legal sphere. Is that what you're saying? No, I think it's going the same way, unfortunately. A lot of the Brexit litigation and in general, the, the growth of particularly human rights litigation and law over the last 20 years has now started to give law an appearance of being political and judges an appearance of being political. That standing aloof from political debate, which was a 
a, a normal part of what what you see in the figure of a judge. Whether it's true or not, that's certainly now seen as retreating. Elisa, you're also a faith leader here in Cambridge uh, of the Jewish community. Um, would you um, relate to what Neil's saying in terms of the authority uh, in his uh, in the denomination that he represents, the United Reformed Church? Does that echo your own experience? Um, I think here in Cambridge, it's a little bit different, the way religious authority works. It's more of a pastoral, very intimate relationship that you form with your community. Um, but I will say that in the past four years, there has been recorded an interesting phenomenon in which somebody called it the end of the rabbinical era, where people aren't turning to rabbis anymore for any kind of rabbinical guidance about halacha, about what are, what is the way in which to keep different things in Judaism, and they are finding that information in their in themselves. So the, the halacha is the Jewish law, right? And when would you say the rabbinical era began? So I think the rabbinical era began almost with the onset of, uh, of, of the rabbinical discourse in the Mishnah and the, and the Gemara. So like 300, like year 300. So we're talking about 1800 years ago. Right. And you're saying we're coming to the end of 1800 years of rabbinic authority. Right. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, I, and, and it's, it's as if a believer, a Jewish believer now could be autonomous. He doesn't need, he can access those texts. He doesn't need the rabbis now to tell him what is right or wrong. What does he need to do? He can judge for himself. So we are all instant experts. Indeed, yes. So I think that is a perfect moment to come to the end of, of part one. You're listening to Naked Reflections. And with me this week are Elisa Simon, Patrick Nash and Neil Thorogood. And we're discussing authority or the lack of it. Let's consider the problems scientists have in this area. Do you remember the strident anti-vaccine campaign of a few years ago? It's still bubbling away. What we know from experiments is that uh, if I tell you that vaccines are safe or if a doctor tells you that vaccines are safe, um, but then subsequently you come across a picture of the internet of a, a child, you know, a doctored image of a child that's suffering from a side effect of vaccines that totally trumps your you know, sense of science and your belief in the scientific consensus. That was Sander van der Linden from the Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge, speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. Can we just touch on how authority in our particular areas has been undermined or has been reinforced in the, your own work with one particular example? There's something you've encountered where it's actually affected your authority. An awful lot of people would say that they no longer see the Bible and Scripture as something significant in their lives, and plenty of those people are in churches. And I was reflecting on this uh, with some of our ministers, and we were recognising that part of what's gone on there that we have to hold our hands up to is I think um, myself as a preacher and a leader and others of us who've been involved in that have not always found ways to help people carry their tradition and their scripture into the conversation that they're having with daily life and with the world around them. And so there's been this sense of divorce between the reality of life and the reality of scripture and God's word. And to some extent, people have found themselves just str struggling in the midst of that. The main area that I've studied where I've seen authority start to collapse is the Catholic Church and the clergy child sex abuse crisis. In a way, it's a wider story of a large organisation failing to deal with a very serious problem in a legal, political, 
bureaucratic sense. Uh, but the, the effect of that's not only been financial for the church, but also moral. I, I think that's their their biggest loss in that sense. I would say that a place that I see that authority is being tested is actually in the ability to move forward. So even if um, a rabbi or a religious figure says, I believe that we can move forward and we can allow women to participate in service, or um, we can have people that identify as LGBTQ um, be part of our community, that will be contested by um, other participants in that community. And that is something that is often very hard because you don't even have texts on your side. You're trying to push um, for a reality that you believe would be more, in the end of the day, would be more successful and better for your society. Um, and you really, as, a, as an authority, there it's hard to base that not on the basis of your authority. Um, so that is something that I've encountered. Let's just touch on this whole question of the, how the internet, how this instant expertise has apparently undermined authority. I mean, you are a, a, an avid Twitter user, Neil. I know that from seeing your numerous messages. Um, has it hindered or has it helped you as a religious leader? Uh, that's a lovely question. I think it's made me, th- it's certainly made me think about what I'm doing. Um, it's a, it's it's new, so it's the idea that I can say something and potentially that something floats around the world and and exists out there in some form forever. That's that's way beyond anything that's really ever been possible for someone like me who isn't, a, you know, a major national or international figure. Um, so so it, it's it's a tool um, like the printing press. It's a tool. It, it allows communication. I think what I'm really struck by is that when I tweet, I'm, I deliberately tweet as the principal of Westminster College, and I deliberately tweet as a minister of the United Reformed Church. And what I try to help our students explore, because most of our students have been doing this, they think I'm you know, a dinosaur who has only just woken up. What I try to help them explore is... What does it mean for me to do this and in some way represent the community that I'm doing it on behalf of? Elisa, I want to come back to you in this end of the rabbinic period. Um, because if we don't turn to rabbis anymore within the Jewish sphere, what do we do? Do we just turn to ourselves and be inward-looking individuals, as, as Neil said earlier in the program? Or uh, are we simply relying on what we find on the Internet as long as we agree with what we find? Right. Um, I think it's a question of what is what is the first thing that we consider before making a decision? Is it a religious aspect or is it a personal aspect? And I think that today, at least in the liberal side of um, Judaism, it is much more a individual um, decision-making type of phenomenon. And it's not trying to look for what is the right thing to do religiously? It's trying to do what is the right thing to do for me. And that is a very big difference that we're seeing. Um, I will also say that there is, there is a wider conversation within the community about what is accepted. If you're Orthodox, what is, what is it accepted for you to do? And so we see that more practices that are more liberal or progressive leaning are accepted today within the Orthodox sphere, making it much easier to make decisions that are good and right for me rather than decisions that are good and right religiously or 
with my relationship and covenant with God. That is not a conversation that most people are having. They're having a conversation about where do women fit in in our community and what can we do to enhance that role, even if it doesn't really fit in to the scriptures or it doesn't fit into one of some of the rabbis are saying. We essentially, some of the people are saying, we don't care. We really want to give this role to these people. We're widening the tents of what it means to be orthodox. In a and way. I think this is one of the things that you were saying, Neil, in terms of um, the, the practices that are changing. And I suppose the question I would have is that if we change them so much and so radically, aren't we undermining the very authority of our religious institutions? Isn't this the reason why the churches are declining in number and the number of religious adherents in this country uh, are reducing so significantly because you stand for this change and people want security, they want authority? Uh, yes, that's that's certainly something that can be thrown at us. I think there's elements of truth in that. I suppose, though, I'd, I'd actually, you know, I'd want to say, but we're we're actually trying to be true to our tradition because our tradition says faith is lived out in a context. Faith is not this hermetically sealed thing that you simply pass on from generation to generation. It is a thing that is lived out in context. Calvin is doing all sorts of things in medieval Geneva because of the context in which he is. Um, He's working with scripture, he's working with the tradition, but he's also saying, but actually, we now discern in our time and place that there are some things that are possible that weren't possible or whatever. I, I do recognize that there are other types of church, there are other parts of the Christian community where, for example, the minister would be much more inclined to say, well, this is just the way it is. You know, scripture says this. Um, I was at a, a church on, on Sunday. They're very clear. The Bible says women shouldn't preach, so no woman preaches in that church. My bit of the Christian family would say, well, we ordained the first woman minister in 1917, and actually the world hasn't ended. Now, is that a reason why people haven't come to my church? It, it might be. I think it's entirely possible. If If what people are wanting is something that is very neat and very clear and that doesn't change, then I suppose I would have to had, hold my hand up and say, well, genuinely, that's not the faith that I think I can share. <laughs> As a lawyer, Patrick, is that what you stand for, something that's neat, that's simple, that doesn't change? No, probably the, the best statement of continuity, tradition and change you'll find is the inscription on Thomas Jefferson's memorial in Washington. Sadly, I can't remember it to repeat it verbatim, but it, it's the, the gist of it is that you want change to be slow and difficult and well-reasoned and thought out, but it has to come in some form. Uh, you, you can't, you know, with the, with the internet, the modern world's complete changes in values, you need a way of dealing with that in religion and society and in law. I was just going to say something that um, is coming out of what you're saying, Patrick, is is the question of pace and what pace do we make these changes and what pace can we deal with um, what society is bringing up. And I think that's also interesting for us as faith leaders, if mm. I'm thinking back to what you were saying, mm. um, Neil, that if we manage to look at the things that society is really engaging with, whether it's homosexuality or women's status or right now uh, marriage in Islam that is happening now in the UK, and then the question is, as authority figures, how quickly are we addressing these problems? Mm. How quickly are we providing solutions? And I think some of, the, some of the reasons that maybe the authority figures are kind of being overlooked is because the response is slow um, and it's not it's not fast enough for society 
well, in, in, uh, in terms of what pace should it go at is probably unanswerable. The real point is getting it right. So it might come quickly if the person overseeing it is competent and has a very clear vision and is in tune with what, uh, what people actually need on the ground. It may come a lot slower, particularly in the case of law, where there's committees, endless debate back and forwards. I mean, that can be good in some respects. You get rid of the worst ideas and excesses, but it can also water down a good idea to the point where it's useless. It's probably ultimately about competence. You you can do very quick changes very well, but you can also do enormous damage with very quick, very badly executed changes. And how does that play into the rise of populism, Neil? Because there's a sense that you want you to make your own decisions for myself because of the individualism of society. But at the same time, I want those answers provided for me. And somebody will give those answers very simply. It's very clear cut. It's very straightforward. It's very black and white. I just have to follow them. The worry is not only does it undermine so much authority, whether it's religious or social um, or, or legal for that matter, but it, it, it damages um, society because in a year or two you realise that populist or maybe four or five years is not he, what, what he claims to be. Yes, and, and I think that is, we are watching that happen and it, happen, it seems to be something that happen, can happen again and again and again. And I, I, I suppose, again, I, I think one of the things that's striking is that in the current general election campaign, my sense is that, for example, churches are struggling to know how to be part of this process. Um, our traditional way of doing it is to host hustings and to invite all the people who are standing to come. And that's a very, you know, traditional, organised way of doing things. But it's interesting to set that, you know, a, a couple of hundred people come to that. How do you set that alongside what's being pumped out on Twitter or whatever? And and maybe part of what I have to live with is that maybe we haven't found a way to do this. I always remember Rowan Williams at one point saying that he, he was he was aware that he didn't think we'd come up with a theology of email. You know, that we hadn't found a way theologically to handle just how quickly we were being thrown questions and how quickly we were being asked to give reasoned answers and people were chasing us and saying why haven't you made an answer and and Rowan's point was maybe we're not designed to work this fast back to your point Lisa of, of the speed of this stuff is there a danger when religious leaders intervene or interfere in public affairs I'm thinking of the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis's intervention before the general election. Is this something that ha- undermines uh, authority or does it um, support it? I think there is something very dangerous about um, these sorts of interventions. We see it. It's not only happening now in England. It's happening also in Israel, where rabbis are supporting right-wing coalitions time and again to reinforce their own authority in their communities. And I think I think the very big problem with that is the first thing is that it alienates the part of the community that does not agree with this rabbinical figure politically. And there is no way out of that conversation. So if there is um, a Jew who is going to vote for Labour here in the United Kingdom, or if there are left-wing religious people in Israel, they feel alienated from their rabbinical authorities just because they made comments politically. Um, so that would be the first thing. And the second thing that I would add is... 
there is a big problem with rabbinical authorities giving, I think, their opinions politically. There is something that it shows where they tilt on issues that are very current and often quickly changing and don't necessarily stem from what they have been professionally trained to do. Because you studied the Torah or the Gemara does not enable you to make political, I think, um, decrees or assumptions about current situations. And I think that, that rabbis should be very careful before stating these sorts of opinions. And this is true, not just, of course, in the field of, of religion or the law or, or philosophy. It's also true for our friends at The Naked Scientists because so many scientific assumptions and conclusions are being challenged because somebody finds out online, actually, I must have this illness or I must have that illness. So what do we do about that? I think as a society, what I try and, and, and practice and also maybe teach my students is, is just humility. It seems that we've lost that ability also in interaction with each other and with interaction with other opinions. Um, my, my regard of knowledge, my access to information is the ultimate way to achieve truth um, rather than to, to think and rethink everything that comes in and to have diverse coalitions that make us, that enable us to meet people that are different than us and engage with these ideas in, in just, a, just a manner that is that is more, I'd say, I, at eye level and less uh, overlooking the other. Well, with some humility, I have to claim the authority to say we've reached the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Patrick Nash, Elisa Simon and Neil Thurgood. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time when we're talking about the end of life. What makes a good death? Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.